Hey everyone, thanks so much for joining me for this week's episode of When I Grew Up. It, today I have、um, a special guest. Well, he's special because I've known him for a really long time and we haven't talked in 10 years and now he's here. But he's always someone I've really respected like, in my younger years.、Um, Ed Sohn, how are you, man? So good to be here, Blair. How are you? I'm great.、Um, yeah, so literally, I think it's been. Right? A little over 10 years. Probably been, yeah, it might be over 10 years.、Um, well, so I've known, I knew Ed from church.、Um, and, you know, I was thinking, I was like telling my husband today about you a little bit. And I, I do you still do this? So I, what I remember most about you <laughs>、uh-uh. is like <laughs> you would give me these like questions,、mm. like what if questions. Do you still do this? I do still do that. I do that. <laughs> it's actually it's weirdly important to do that because uh, it helps you um, uh, get clarity on what you think and what you believe. And like, I still do that because it drives people crazy and it makes people think and gets them to talk about themselves, which everyone likes to do. And、um, also, the lawyer in me, right? Like, I used to be a practicing lawyer. Really likes to challenge and litigate people all the time. So if it's like, what if this or that? And then if they choose this, I'm like, but what about that? You know? Yeah, and yeah. Kind of pick a debate because、um, it's good for people to be able to state a, an opinion and then defend it. No, man. I like, I remember because like no one's ever done that, when, especially when I was younger. And <laughs>、um, yeah, you would prompt me with questions that. Afterwards, after I explained everything, because I met, I realized too, like as I've gotten older, like I'm an external processor as well.、Mm, so, like,、yes. sometimes I don't think about what I'm saying because it's just coming out as I'm thinking about it. But I remember doing that in some of the questions that you would give me and just realizing, like, oh my gosh, do I really think that? <laughs> like, <laughs> you know what, though? I'm also an external processor. So, I appreciate that about you because your answers were always. Um, you know,、uh, had conviction, even if maybe you didn't even know what the answer was until you said it, which is an interesting way to answer questions.、Yeah. Uh, and I think that's how I am too.、Um, you work through it. And then if you end up saying, in conclusion, the opposite thing from when I started, then that's okay. That's like, I love that. I think that's great. So、um, That's interesting that you remember that. Yeah, it's, it's like one of the major things. And so, no one actually, no one does that now to, to me. But, but then I'm like, when I, I do it to like a lot of my younger students now, like, oh, so what if? Like... That's great. I think that's so important. That's,、uh, you know, in, actually in law school, you know, sneak preview, if anyone ever wants to go to law school, that's actually how they teach. So, it's called the Socratic method.、Uh-huh. And、um, what you do is you read a case. And usually it's kind of like there are two things that are like really, really, really in balance to each other. And you're like, well, if you go this way, if it's like just slightly this way, then the judge would have ruled that way. But if it's slightly the other way, then the judge should rule that way. And as a society, do we want to encourage, you know, like this? If it's taken to an extreme, what if this? And so then what they, the professor does is just to make sure you really understand the case and all the angles, they'll just grill you. And it's called the Socratic method、um, because、so、that's how Socrates right was. Now. Right? <laughs> Question after question after question to like learn、oh、the、goodness. truth. And so it's like, well, if you do it this way, then you're punishing people for being single because there's a tax haven for being married. 
And it's like, well, if you don't do it that way, then you're punishing people for being married because then they don't have the advantages of single people, you know? And Holy then smokes. you're like, as a society, do we want to encourage people to be married or to be single? And you're like, I don't know, you know? But that's like, that's how law, that's how law works. Like everything yeah. has one, you know, you promote one cause and then you're sort of um, not promoting another cause, right? Tacitly kind of like deprioritizing it, so. Yes, yes. Well, as Ed said, um, he was a practicing lawyer, but the reason he's here today is to tell me about what he actually does, which before we started recording, we tried to break down. But anyways, I'm excited uh, to hear more about it. So um, without further ado, um, Ed, what is it that you do? (laughs) (laughs) What is Chandler Bing's job? So <laughs> friends reference from for many people who won't even recognize it anymore. The um, my job is I am an executive, uh, a senior vice president of um, delivery capabilities at a company that delivers legal services. So the company is most important to understand. It's like a law firm, but it's not a, we don't practice law. We deliver legal services and we deliver them from all around the world. And so the name of my company is called Factor. And we specifically, my company is like corner of the industry of this kind of like what they call the alternative legal services industry Mm -hmm. is uh, focused on contracts. And Mm -hmm. so every day, companies, organizations need contracts. We need to get, uh, you know, we need to buy a thousand pencils. We need to get six licenses to Salesforce or Canva or whatever, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we need to sell our products in the market, you know, like we need to sell, um, you know, we need to enter into a clinical trial agreement in order to get uh, this clinical trial up and running at this pharmaceutical company so that somebody in Ohio can get like life-saving cancer, you know, potential medicines. And so all these companies in order to make that happen have to sign a contract Mm -hmm. uh, with somebody. And so um, negotiating that contract, making sure both parties are, are protected, making sure the business interests are met. Um, that requires a lot of legal skill and talent, but it's actually not technically the practice of law because any two people in the street can enter into a contract, you know, like we do it all the time. Um, I give you $5 and you give me, you know, like a happy meal or whatever. So like, that's a contract. Mm-hmm. So uh, we get really strong, smart legal talent from all around the world, mainly in Poland, uh, in Northern Ireland and in Chicago. And we um, put them into centers of excellence where we can kind of work as teams and coordinate process and use technology, which is a lot of stuff that lawyers don't do. Mm -hmm. And then we deliver contracts for businesses. You know, uh, we get when they have a need and they need to paper the deal, we get the deal done. So um, that's what my company does. My job in that company, probably I've kind of already worn several hats inside of this company. But uh, I report to the CEO, I'm in the senior management team, and my job is to oversee, my new job as of like just a couple of weeks ago, is to oversee all of the people in our centers. Um, and so I'm not going to run our accounts and clients and stuff like that. That's sort of like in a client management, account management sort of structure. My job is to focus on our people, mm-hmm. making sure they have career paths, making sure they have learning and development, making sure that they're, you know, um, given a path to promotion and that they know how to use the technology that we've got and that we're very sensitive to the culture in the offices and that, you know, we're managing people basically, right? Like this people management thing. And so that reports into the leader of each one of those three sites. And then those sites will report into me. Mm -hmm. And then there's also a bunch of other talent stuff, like what we call employee experience. Like, what is it like to work at this company? What's your experience? You know, what's the brand of the company? And, um, 
how do we reinforce that starting from day zero all the way to the last day that you work here? Um, and then, you know, a lot of stuff around just what are the skills like in our workforce? Like we want to do really cool things for our clients. Sometimes they ask us to negotiate, you know, like some cell tower agreements in Germany. Well, then we need German language speakers and contract negotiators and stuff like that. So that's, that's really um, my job is to focus on our people, um, their capacity, like how much availability they have to work and their lives and their culture and their learning as well as their capabilities, like mm -hmm. what are their skills and how do we make sure those come together? So that's after a long career, you know, as a lawyer, as a technology product leader, as a, an innovation leader, as um, a managed service leader. And now I'm in this kind of just business executive role at this legal services company. Okay, we're gonna have to backtrack just a little, but okay. it was Let's very, I, I understood everything, I think. Cool. That's, that's a miracle. It only took me like 10 minutes to explain it. No, all. no, it was so good. You know, um, so guys, for those of you that don't know, I actually, to all my guests, I send kind of like an outline for my, um, you know, more type A guests that need kind of a, a guideline to what I'm going to talk about. And when I sent this to you, I literally thought this, this does not apply because, because, um, I will say that you are um, more seasoned in your career than most of yeah. my guests, right? So That's I feel true. like a lot of the questions I ask are like about school, you know, what was the process and things like that. Um, you know, what, how are, how are your LSATs? <laughs> like, you know, things like that. But I'm I happy really... to talk about all that stuff, by the yes, way. Yes. We should. Maybe this should be called like, when I grew up, I was yeah. whatever, you know, like what my past jobs were. Like, I'm happy to talk about that stuff too. Um, well, I want to hear actually about it because it's actually, I know that you you have been doing a lot of amazing things in the past too to get you where you are today. But yeah, so I, all that to say, I know that you have been in the industry and doing different types of things in legal services for a very long time. But in particular with Factor, um, just so I have some clarity, maybe someone listening doesn't fully understand. Sure. Um, so say I'm a company uh -huh. and I need a contract That's right. with somebody else. Yep. I wouldn't make the contract myself. I would hire you yep. per se. And then you would make the contract form. I would just tell you what I want to happen and you would Basically. come up with the legal terms for it. Yeah, that's usually how it works. Exactly okay. right. Um, now, like the kind of way that companies always did it was that they would have their own people make these contracts. Um, but what ended up happening was like, it was always this weird afterthought. It was like, oh, okay, the business people agree. They shake hands. I'll give you this bunch. You give me that. I give you this, do that. Okay, deal. Right. And then they're just like, okay, the lawyers will do it. And then the lawyers oftentimes were like the wrong people to do it because they do thousands of these transactions a year. Mm. And so then it was like, well, having a bunch of lawyers just doing this all the time, you know, getting like fancy lawyers who are pretty expensive, like that doesn't really make sense. And then they got a bunch of like contract managers to do it. And really what companies decided was like, you know, there's people who can do this better than us and faster mm -hmm. and can kind of like scale up and down. Like, you know, sometimes at the end of a business quarter, there's like a lot of deals. And so then they need actually like 50 people to do contracts, but then most of the time they only need like 10, you know? So providing that scale to handle some of the spikes in their mm -hmm. kind of demand. 
Um, or sometimes they're just not good at contracting. Like it's just this weird thing where a bunch of people are like, okay, I guess I'll just go write the contract myself. And then there's like a bunch of risky holes in the contract that come back to haunt them later or like, they're just not great at it, you know? And so, um, it is kind of like outsourcing it to somebody else. So it is a function that's historically companies would just do it themselves, but after a while they started realizing it doesn't make as much sense to do it ourselves. We're reinventing the wheel. It's inconsistent. It doesn't scale. So mm-hmm. then they give it to us. I see. That makes sense. I'm just curious, like, do contracts have like templates? Like, I, cause like, I'm they sure do. you do thousands of contracts. Yeah, like They do. They do. They totally have templates. The funny thing about contracts is that um, each side wants the deal to happen, but each side wants as much advantage as possible in the contract. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of like, why, um, you know, whenever anyone gets a job offer, you know, a lot of times you negotiate that actually, you negotiate the offer, you negotiate the terms, how many days off you get, like your 401k, the job title, stuff like that. And you're just like, it would be so much easier if everything was just kind of like predetermined and you just mm-hmm. sort of like, that's it. Everyone gets paid the amount, same, paid the same amount. You're four years out of college. This is what you get at the end. But like, that's not how the world works because mm-hmm. some people are more valuable than others and other people are like, you know, the supply might be short, et cetera. So contracts are like really like living things. So there, there are templates and the, what, the way we do it is we put some science into it and we're like, this is your preferred position. You want to be paid 30 days after the delivery of services. Mm-hmm. But if knowing that the other party is going to be like, I want to wait longer to pay you because I want more flexibility, I'm going to say 60. A lot of times our templates will say your fallback position is 45 and that's also acceptable. And so we have kind of like a template with a bunch of like positions and fallback positions and stuff like that. I see. So that we can negotiate through that and navigate it. Um, But a lot of times you got to get really creative still with contracts. Like it sounds like it should be pretty straightforward, Mm -hmm. but a lot of times you have to get kind of creative, you know? And so um, they go off book and you need some talented people to both, do the templates, Mm -hmm. decide what those positions are in advance, repeat, 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 and make it very standardized. That's Mm -hmm. a lot of the magic of what we do, but also be like a sophisticated contracting person that understands the business, knows how to get the deal done, knows how to come up with like kind of creative solutions, that kind of stuff. Okay. That's okay. (laughs) Yeah. So we negotiate contracts. That's what we do. We negotiate contracts. Yes. Okay. So, um, sorry, a term that you used a couple of times was, um, for centers what what did what is that yeah that's a weird term these days because of the pandemic and working remotely centers used to refer to like a real physical like location and like a building like people would literally come in uh-huh. and we'd sit them you know like in the office we'd have offices literally we call them centers of excellence because it's where we um without getting like too far into the terminology we sort of create shared services centers And so instead of like uh, Microsoft has their own contracting happening in Washington and, Uh you know, Credit Suisse has their own contracting happening in Geneva and whatever, in London, whatever, we centralize it into like a center um, in like Belfast or like in Poland or in Chicago. And those are just the three centers. It was just our terminology for it, for just where our offices are, where we recruit and grow talent. Yeah. Okay. And so the people that you guys have gathered into these centers of excellence, like, um, sorry, just to clarify, are these lawyers? You said you don't have to be a lawyer to do a contract. They're right? mostly lawyers. Okay. They're mostly lawyers. We do have some like project managers and people like that also, 
that just help us stay organized and deliver, you know, on time and under budget. Um, the lawyers are, again, we're not a law firm, so mm-hmm. they're not really mm-hmm. practicing law. Um, that's a very complicated thing to get into, but like <laughs> a lot of lawyers graduate law school, become lawyers, and then most of their activities are just negotiating transactions many times, which don't require a law degree. Um, but we have a lot of lawyers because it's important to understand the law and understand the contracts and understand all that stuff. But also like lawyers, another interesting thing you learn about like in a globalized workforce is that lawyers around the world don't need to go to like three years of law school and pass a bar and like all that stuff. A lot of times it's kind of like a five-year undergraduate program. And then you're kind of like, you know, the equivalent of like a, a law, like a legal education graduate. Right. So, um, so yeah, we get smart lawyers from all over the place and they come to us to deliver legal services in like a different way. So what's interesting for me is like, Oh, like, you know, I think I have this, this is what a lawyer does, Mm -hmm. but lawyers don't have to do that. What I'm thinking of. So, (laughs) yeah, that's right. No, that's right. So, you know, to really like dig into it a little bit, like lawyers, are um, like artisans, you know, Mm -hmm. like when you go to a lawyer, like a really smart lawyer, uh, yes, there are templates, but what they'll do is they'll come up with special language that Uh is really cool. And, you know, has a really interesting way of kind of getting the business objective done, but also covering their legal risks. And they use interesting phraseology and sentences. And so there's a lot of writing and like wordsmithing. but as a result of that kind of artisan nature of the of the job, mm-hmm. it's difficult to standardize. It's difficult to centralize. It's difficult to use templates and fallbacks. It's difficult to use technology and AI. Like lawyers, that's not really what lawyers do. You know, lawyers mm-hmm. just kind of sit at their desk and like think really hard about the document <laughs> and like come up with really like interesting ways to add more words, you know, and like whatever. <laughs> and that's um, that's that's really important for really complex transactions. Like you actually need a lot of that creativity and. But for your most day-to-day contracts that a business needs, um, what you need is you need to be able to turn that on if necessary, Mm. but you really need to like just bring good business principles like process and quality control and technology into the job. Mm. And like lawyers have never really done that. And that's a lot of what companies like mine do. They, They try to actually, you know, kind of industrialize it or really standardize a lot of the work. That's so interesting. So basically, you're just you your company like tries to find find more innovative ways to do the job. A very good way of putting it. Yes. And so one of the one of my like what what is my job title was going to be like I'm like a leg, a legal innovation leader, oh, which is true. It. Like I write and talk about these things all the time, and I'm going to I you know I go to conferences and speak and whatever, but like, it's because of the nature of the work is exactly kind of like an innovative, different way of doing the work. Okay. So like, but everything you've said, like, is that part of the innovation or is there more that I'm like not understanding? Like what is the innovative part per se? Is it just that it's usually done this way, but we're doing it this way? Yeah, that's basically it. I mean, there are really cool things that we try to do. So for instance, um, there are some software tools that we'll use out there Um, that I just have to kind of teach it. I care about this, this, and this. I care about this term. I care about this risk. I don't care about that risk. I need this language. And then you just teach the AI what to do. Uh And then the first time it gets a contract, because, you know, contracts, like you said, there's a template. Uh So let's say that you're a buyer and I'm a seller. Okay. 
do you use my template as the first draft or do you use your template as the first draft? If you use my template and I'm the you know person doing the contracting, it's like first party. Uh, if I use your template, they call it third party paper, right? Okay. It's like, I, I, it wasn't written. So you're, the paragraphs are like in a different order and you have like different starting language and stuff, right? So what's your starting point? Whose template do you use? So this AI can read paper that is totally third party. Like it's not anything that it's familiar with. It's not like a red line. Like it doesn't just compare the words, but uh-huh. it can actually read the ideas inside the contract, even if it's using totally different language and a totally different order. And then it can look at what I taught it where like the right positions and then it, it can actually go and make revisions automatically into Shut your up. version and then just send it back to you and be like, hey, I don't agree with these things. Check this out. Now, there's limits to that technology. You need humans in the loop. You need people to operate, et cetera. But that's pretty cool. I mean, no, the that's contracts, freaking fascinating. So like, if you have that AI on your side and I have it on my side, you literally might have negotiation going back between computers someday. Like that might just be what we do. That's insane. It's whack. There's so much stuff like that. Like people hear a lot about crypto and the blockchain. There's also self-executing contracts that like, because they're on the blockchain and because they're kind of handled in like this trustless way, like they're automated. So it's kind of like, if you get into a car crash, I'm your insurance company. We have a contract. I will pay for your car crash. Right. And let's say you get into a car crash, a smart contract that lives on the blockchain, as soon as it can verify that the car crash was real, can automatically pay you. Like, oh my gosh, contracting <laughs> has like a whole bright new future. And there's like all this cool stuff out there. But it's really also kind of like, whatever. Like It's like, most of it is just, we need some paper that says that you agree to this. And I agree to that. And you put it in writing and I put it in writing. If you break your promise, I can come sue you. If I break my promise, you can come sue me. That's mostly what contracts are about. But there's some really innovative things ahead. And our companies like ours, because we get so many of them and we centralize them, mm-hmm, we can mm-hmm. start to do cool stuff to it. Whereas like, if you're just one company and you don't have that many contracts, then mm-hmm. like the cool stuff sometimes is kind of like, it's like a sideshow. It's like not worth it because I you see, don't have that I many. See. Right. So. That is, am- that's so fascinating. I'm like, yeah, there's cool <laughs> stuff in this world. Yeah. It's really cool. Sorry. So just a little sidebar, you know, what also comes to mind sometimes when I think about you from my past. <laughs> It's like they're like you know you used to have these like one-liners kind of oh yeah aphorisms and and like something you used to say is like when I have kids they better not ask me anything because like technology will be so advanced that they they're just gonna ask Google or whatever like whatever and that always like stuck with me for some reason i don't know why and by isn't the way that the world we live in now isn't yeah that like but that's world? literally and so i sometimes i think about you because i'm like oh remember when ed used to say that to us about his own kids i mean my kids they better not ask me anything anymore. <laughs> you know interesting follow-up on that sidebar is what i didn't take into account when i was thinking about that was that uh humans especially children they love to remember stuff yes they love to remember stuff. Yeah. It's actually really fun for them to like, rem- like I remember um, uh, Francis, my oldest was watching like some stupid show on HBO, like little Einstein's or something. Uh-huh. And there's one episode where they end up in like having a little like kid party in like the palace of Versailles in France. And he's like, Versailles. I was like, yeah. And he's like, Appa, didn't you go there like a long time ago? And I was like, what? How would you know that about yeah. me? Like, were you there? Like when I was like in 19 or whatever, I took my family vacation. And what I realized is like probably like half asleep when he was watching it some other time, I told him like, oh yeah, I went there once a long time ago. 
And I like went back to sleep and don't remember. But he remembered that that scene when it came up was a place that I had personally been to. Amazing. So kids, rem- I mean, you've got kids. Like kids remember crazy things. So I assumed when I was younger that, you know, and I said those things to you, that people would just um, deprioritize remembering things mm. because you can always ask Google. So why store memory? Why store knowledge in your memory when you can just store it in the internet? Like you don't ever need to know anything. You just have to look it up. But what I didn't account for was the fact that humans love remembering mm-hmm. and like memory is an unbelievably powerful thing, actually. Um, we, we make narrative out of memory. We have memories of things that you can't Google. There are some things you cannot Google. Yeah. Like, you know, when you remember the sound like of a classical music song, it's very difficult to Google that. And you're like, how does that song go? And then you're like, Hey, Google, how does that song go? Google does not give you an answer. Do you know what I mean? Like you can't hum Mozart and then get Google to tell you which one it is or like Google, what was that? What was that restaurant in, uh, you know, San Francisco? Like it smelled kind of like this. And Google's not going to know, like, yeah. based on your memory of that smell. That's so funny. Human memory <laughs> is actually more powerful. And so people won't need to memorize things because they have to, like we did for all of human society until now. Yes. People will remember stuff because they want to. Like, humans love remembering things. Oh, man. I knew this conversation was going to be so great with you. Oh, so crazy, right? <laughs> <laughs> but you learn these things when you have kids, though, right? Because then yes, their brains yes. are all, like, wiped. Their hard drives it's are all ins- clean. Insane. They don't have anything in there. Yeah. Like so, it's so it's insane. Like, I'm I am in shock these days cuz like my 3-year-old too will say like the the craziest and like most intellectual things that I'm like oh, wow like are we all born like this? Like did we mess up? Like like you know what I mean? Like <laughs> No, like, I know. Like do you know yeah. what I'm saying? Like they're so smart. Like Yeah. Yeah. But it's... anyways, it's amazing. Back it's amazing. to your your job. <laughs> That's my job. Whatever. Less amazing. <laughs> um, but but um, so you said that you kind of had have taken on a new position in the last couple yep. of weeks of just kind of um, taking care of the people. Which yes. when you say it like that, I mean for me and what I know about you and just some of um, what we've what we I guess what you've taught me when I was younger too like is uh yeah I feel like you that job seems perfect for you (laughs) like caring Uh, about the people but (laughs) that is uh that is I'm blessed for you to say that that's um that really means a lot to me I was uh speaking to someone earlier today that I you know consult frequently for kind of just reflecting on things and personal matters and um I was saying how this decision to kind of take this job made a lot of sense to me because, mm-hmm. and this is probably, if there's nothing else anyone remembers from this podcast, like this is the thing, this is like the only thing I have to offer that's actually worth anything. It's, um, it's simple. Um, uh, there really is something that we can all do that uh, we can feel good about the work. We can feel proud of it. We can feel like it contributes something to the world and advances like some positive thing in the world. Um, and it's something that we love to do. And when you realize that that is, uh, and hopefully something you're good at or can get good at, um, when you realize where those things intersect, um, you found, you know, calling is like too strong of a word, but like mm-hmm. you found a really profound sense of meaning in your work. And what ends up happening, you know, work, the workplace is so important because 
it is the primary context of our life. It is where we spend 40, 50, 60, 70 hours of our lives, of our, you know, our days and our nights. Yeah. Um, for better or for worse, you know, they're always on culture, like whatever. Like it is where we um it's our primary context. And so that means every job is sacred, right? You if you're ever in a position where you can hire and fire people, you have to take that job with great gravity. You know, you have to take that really seriously because every job is sacred. Um and every person has incredible potential that they can unlock. Like that's the truth of it. And so for me, um, that meaning is something I think I derive from people. I want to be a great leader of people, not like a great, like Alexander the Great, like, you know, like historic leader of people, but I want to be a leader of people that um, is, uh, is, has the hallmarks of great leadership, you know, and um, I have been fortunate to work with some great leaders and their uh, shadow casts a really um, they cast a really long shadow over my life. Like there's a lot of things where like things that I say, you know, mannerisms, the way I respond in very specific situations, uh, have been somebody's investing investment into me. Um, and I probably was really slow and stupid to pick up on some of those lessons earlier in my life. And uh, later on, like really kind of came alive. So, um, uh, and here's the crazy thing in this world where we're so ambitious and where a lot of us are, you know, like maybe come from like an immigrant ethos, like, you know, where it's like, you gotta, you know, do better than the last generation or you got, there's all this pressure and uh, pressure to achieve pressure to succeed pressure to perform pressure to um, be financially stable pressure to, um, you know, compete to do better than others. Like there's all these pressures that really kind of fuel a lot of our uh, academics and life choices and all that. And I do think there's a time in your life where you want to maximize optionality. There is that moment where you should give everything your all and get the best grades you can get and network and do these things um, to provide optionality. But, you know, like I'm Blair, I'm 40. What am I? 41. I'm 41, like, which is ancient. Um, it's weird to hear Not, myself say that those but, words, but you know, but like I was, I'm shocked that you said you're 41, but, <laughs> but I'm 40, right. It's shocking. Like, am I 41? That's crazy. So like, but I'm 41 and, um, now I'm hung up on the fact that I'm 41. What was I saying? Oh yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm not in a point in my life where I need to maximize optionality because that comes at a cost, right? That comes at a cost. Like maximizing optionality means, okay, I'll get up and move anywhere, anytime. Sure. No problem. On, on, on a spot. Oh, you know what? I don't need to do anything with my weekend. I'm just going to work all weekend, no matter what, mm-hmm. anytime, all the time, you know, like, um, I kind of want to hang out. I kind of want to have fun, but also I got to get like, you know, 14 hours of work done today. So I'm just going to take a break from like five to eight and have a long dinner and then work until three in the morning. No problem. I can do it. Not, no one depends on me. Nothing matters. Like I need to maximize my nationality. I need to compete. I need to be better. I need to, and I can't do that anymore. The constraints of my life don't allow me to do that anymore. Yeah. But also, like, I don't want to design my life like that anymore. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not appropriate to my life stage. So there is a point in your time where you need to not preserve optionality and not be ambitious and constantly just reach higher and higher and higher. Um, for some, for a very small minority of people, that's worthwhile because that is that ambition by itself is the thing that gratifies them, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like, okay, fine. That for a small number of people, like. Just don't stop until you're like the CEO of JP Morgan or whatever, you know, like just go for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, President of the United States. But 
for the rest of us, the 99.999%, um, at some point you have to s- stop climbing the ladder and decide what is it that you'll be happy with as your legacy in your life. And um, for a lot of us, that's like spiritual. For a lot of us, that's, um, you know, family, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and for some of us, it's what we can do at work. Um, and hopefully some element of all different areas of your life. And for me, uh, a recent realization is I can do a lot with software. I can do a lot with innovation. I can do a lot with kind of external like markets, writing, speaking. I can do a lot with, um, uh, actually, I'm pretty good at like financial management, business cases, stuff like that. Um, I can do a lot with um, a lot of stuff. I can support sales. There's a lot of things I can do. Um, and I'm blessed and I'm thankful for like having um, a lot of good teachers and mentors and having now accumulated a lot of skills. But the thing I want to do is I want to lead people. And if I don't get promoted out of this job ever, if I don't like get the next brass ring, if I don't get the next, you know, equity option grant and like make the maximum amount of money and like whatever, but I've led people and have influenced their lives, you know, like whatever like contracts that we do this like year, uh, no one is going to remember them seven years from now. Yeah. Unless they're like in litigation, but hopefully not. Right. Like, <laughs> so like, hopefully no one's caring. Hopefully these contracts never get remembered because everything goes smoothly. Mm-hmm. Business relationships. Great. And then no one ever revisits the contract. No one, this company, hopefully will it be around in 15 years. I don't know. I hope so. Um, but it might not be, you know, what will matter though, are the things that were said and the support that was lent to the people that you worked with. Those things will last because memory, wow, full circle, humans love to remember things. And what they'll remember is when they had a great boss. What they'll remember is like, there's a really vulnerable moment where a workplace could have responded two different ways and they responded the right way, Yeah, you know, and they were supportive and they were accommodating and they uh, were an environment that uh, prioritized their values and put their people first, you know, like, that that's a thing that's a memorable thing and that will last way more than whatever it is that we get so stressed about these days so for me that's meaningful and for me i would commit myself to that and if i got hit by a bus a year from now like i'd feel like man i i got to do this thing that i i feel like i wanted to do you know yeah um so yeah, that's the main point. No, that's, um, <laughs> is like, I, um, do sorry, that thing. I'm like, I kind of like got a little bit emotional. I felt like, like when you were talking just cause like, yeah, I mean, just full circle moment for me and, um, you know, recalling all the memories that I have and conversations that I've had with you, I can personally say that the impact, honestly, like I may not have realized it right at the time, but, um, so I think the main, like, part of our relationship that we had developed at church was a mission missions training yeah and so I remember that very clearly and I think just the moments that you would share about your life or what the purpose was or just you know small things like you know me trying to figure out your question right like uh, and figure out who I am when I was younger and um all that to say I think my the emotional part as you were talking was kind of like yeah, like, that's what people remember, you know, I remember all of those things. And 
it did it did impact me without even really realizing it. So thank you. <laughs> thank you so well, much. Well, <laughs> thank you for saying that because that I mean when you said that earlier and even when you were saying like, oh hey, uh it feels like it's right up your alley that you would go and lead people and like care for them. Uh, that that sounded like me that's really that's a blessing we haven't talked for 10 years but like yeah really reinforces for me that uh um you know like sometimes I'm kind of an idiot about stuff like oh do I want to do this do I want to do that and then you know I've decided like I had this big revelation I want to care for people and you're like yeah obviously that's you I was like oh okay <laughs> like well then I've been oh, wait, you know, so, wait, my hold wheels on, hold on. Like- so you said you know it's it's a recent kind of position change so this position did not exist before we're sort of restructuring the way that we're organized. We had one major senior executive that was responsible for like all the people delivering client work uh, and also taking care of those people and also their learning and development and also like a five other things and like we're growing so fast that mm-hmm. that's not sustainable. And um, we also made a very conscious decision to invest into our people. And so, like I said, I can do a lot of things on the management team and there's like a lot of good things I could do, but this is our CEO and our leadership team saying, we're going to commit this resource of ed into our people fully, like just dedicated with focus to like take care of them. And so, um, yeah. Hey, when do you think you'll re- release this podcast? Like when will this go actually live? Do you think? What's today is, um, the seventh. Then, uh, yeah. I th- probably Monday? two weeks, a couple weeks. Okay. Yeah. Why? All right. No, I, there's something I would not disclose right now. So okay, don't disclose it. Don't do it. Yeah, okay. Or you can cut it later if you want to, if you're going to edit this, but yeah, never mind. I won't disclose it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so curious now, but it's okay. Uh, I'll tell you later. It's fine. Okay. Um, but okay. Well, what does a typical day for you look like then? Like a lot of meetings or? A lot of meetings. So your outlook, your calendar just fills up with a bunch of meetings. Um... So some of the things I'm dealing with right now, um, the easiest way to divide up your time is kind of like into uh, maybe four things, right? One is uh, the things that you need to do for the people who report to you. So I'll have kind of a management structure. Uh, We have three offices in Northern Ireland, in Poland, and in Illinois, in Chicago. And um, they will have just started reporting to me. So I have like what just one-on-one calls with them. And uh, every person is, you know, deserves and is entitled to some uh, amount of one-on-one time with their direct manager, at least like once a week. Mm -hmm. So I make myself available. And this year I made a resolution to not bring an agenda to that call. Like Mm -hmm. I want to be available for them. So like, what do you need? I'm here. (laughs) I'm your resource. I'm here to help you. So you tell me what, how to use this time well for you, because like, I'm not going to just bark things at you. Like I, I have the, the second category is, you know, the things that I need to work on that I need to individually contribute because I'm in, in charge of an initiative or, you know, like we're going to start recruiting directly from law schools. And we have this whole new grad program that we need to get off the ground. And it's like a huge thing. It's like, actually, you got to like go and post these things and like <laughs> go to universities and form relationships. And then like, you know, get that people to apply and then put them through an interview path, make offers. And then, you know, design their entire first 60 days at the company. And like our business is over like 10 years old, but our company is only like two years old. Mm -hmm. So like we lived inside of another business and then we got spun out like two years ago. So even though the, we've been serving clients and doing this work for like 10 years, you know, more than 10 years, actually, most of those years were under another company's umbrella. And so we were inside of their infrastructure and their strategy and all that stuff. 
So we've only been an independent company for a couple of years. So it's like a mature startup. So yeah, we don't have like a mature recruiting motion. And so I've got like 10 of those initiatives. They're just like that, like a grad program or like learning and development or like a school of financial management, designing that, getting our managers to understand how the business works or um, culture, right? Like how do you invest into very specific culture, language, identity, values? Like how do you stand those things up? How do you get everyone to subscribe to that? Um, you know, like just governance, like everyone needs to build their time. Sorry, but you got to do it. Please do it. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> how do you make people do it? How do you get people to adopt that carrots and sticks? Or do you use like social learning? Like, are there cool ways to get people to kind of behave? So those are all my initiatives. But I don't That's go to my one-on-one -on -one time. <laughs> yeah, no, I've got a bunch of that stuff. And, and like, you have to go sort of at a sustainable pace. But I try not to just like, blah, like put all that <laughs> stuff onto my team's like plate and just be like, do this stuff, you know? one-on-one uh, -on -one time is for me to listen to them they know what they have to do they have their own responsibilities as well I'm there for them when I need them for stuff I use other time in the week like I'll pull a specific meeting together for them so first I am available for my reports second I am available to my own contributions um, thirdly I'm available to uh, my stakeholders so I report to my CEO uh, he reports to the board of directors so I have a lot of responsibilities to him um he asks me for lots of things for thought partnership for you know actual materials like make a slide deck like look at the stuff whatever um and so i have lots of things i have to mobilize for him to prepare to you know present on our results or to go in front of the board or even for me to go in front of the board if that's if that's more efficient um and then the fourth thing is kind of like everything else like you just have like a lot of extracurriculars that kind of fill your day with a lot of meetings you know like um, just stuff, other stuff that just kind of fills up your day. Uh, I do a lot in the market. I always stay really connected to the overall community outside of my company. So, you know, like if there's a conference, you go to that. If there's a podcast, you do that. If there's an article you need to write, you do that. Um, you know, if, uh, you gotta go teach a class somewhere, you do that, like stuff like that. Wow, man. Uh <laughs> I'm like overwhelmed listening to you, but I also know I'm sure you steward all of those things really well. Um, I have to ask like really quick, um, you know, as impressive as everything sounds, I'm really curious because I know that you are a husband and also a dad. Yes. Like, how do you balance all of this? So uh, you do have to. Um, and <laughs> the uh, the hard thing is that in my leadership team, um, there's really only two other people with young kids, uh -huh. you know, and one of them, they're more like, you know, kind of adolescent and like preteen. I see, I see. So, um, it's just me and my HR leader that have like, you know, kids under five. Uh -huh. Um, and I guess you easily forget what that's like. I don't know. Like I can't forget because I'm living it every day. You're living it every day. Drop off, pick up weekend stuff, you know, like you can't actually venture out of the house without having some coverage for them because you can't, you know, like the cops come and get you if you like leave your kid at home or, <laughs> you know, like in a park or on a toilet or whatever, you know, like, oh, okay, you got to like take care of these little creatures. Um, you know, your nine month old can't get, you know, like cookies on breakfast and stuff. So I taught my five-year-old how to cook his own breakfast, actually. It's, it's, it's miraculous. It okay, saves are you, are so many. Are you for real right now? Yeah. So he doesn't like fry eggs or whatever, but we have frozen pancakes. He pops them in the microwave. I prepare fruit and a cup of milk in advance the day before. 
He pulls the milk out of the fridge. He gets the pancakes out, puts it on his plate. I leave syrup out for him. He eats it all, puts it in the sink. And then the deal is he has to get fully dressed, including his socks, because socks are the killer. Yes. He fully dressed, including his socks, go downstairs, make some, he's an early riser. So he gets up before all of us and then make his own breakfast and eat it. And then he has full, total, unfettered free time until we have to go to school. That's the deal. If he does those things, he can play on his leapfrog tablet. He can watch, you know, TV, like whatever it is until we have to go to school. I am like, like amazed right now. It works though. He does it. And then like it's, he gets a lot out of it too, because otherwise he's like, comes into our room, just sits around or like, yes, don't, don't watch yes. TV. Like, oh, I'm yes. so sleepy. And then I wake up like, oh no, I got to get you to school. Like make breakfast, shove it in his mouth. No, we got to go. Like that that's worse. Sense. And so- <gasps> he's really motivated to do it right. And then I'm like, if you don't put your socks on, then we don't have this routine anymore, even though it totally benefits me. Right. <laughs> and like, he now does it amazingly. That's so amazing. I think Eli will do that if I incentivize him. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Because it's, it's, it's an unpleasant experience getting out the door in the morning <laughs> for a kid. It's, it's just like, like war. why are we it's rushing? War. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's war. And I try to like quantify it. I'm like, look, Francis, we have so many minutes and now we're running out of minutes. Like, we don't have any minutes left, man. Like, you're using all the minutes on standing in the hallway and not putting on your coat. You I know, love like, it. I love so, it. So, uh, anyway, so how do you balance it? Is the question. <laughs> um, you got to prioritize. You have mm-hmm. to. You have to always prioritize it. But um, it's the craziest thing because, like, you see movies and you're just like, oh, this person's going to go and, like, fight like an asteroid that's going to come to their earth because the, they don't even, it's not even because they love the humanity and all the people of Earth. They just care about their one family that's going to get hit by the asteroid. So they're <laughs> going to like go into space and like whatever. Like you see these like crazy. And then you're like that when you're watching it and you don't have kids, you're like that calculus doesn't make sense. Like mm. I don't love anything as much as that. Like that I would go in like whatever, like, you know, like get onto a space bicycle and go into the sun or whatever. Like I'm not going to do that for anybody, you know? And then you have kids and then you're like, of course, that's what you would do. And it's not because you have this overwhelming parental you know, instinct. There is that, you know, there's some of that, but it's just like, um, it's just like, it's just like logical. It just makes total sense that you would do that, that like yeah. human beings are organized that way and we're hardwired that way. And so, um, you know, when you read enough books and you have it sort of drilled into your memory and then. I also learned some lessons the hard way because before I started at Factor, I was at EY and I was basically this chief technical or technology officer for the global law firm that lives inside of EY, which is like 2400 lawyers. And that put me on the road 80% of the time, a lot of times in other countries. And so like, I couldn't even like video chat my kids and like, and then I just had Francis at the time. And I kind of feel like he saw me as like a fun uncle that came by once in a while you know like I wasn't really his dad and so he'd be nice to me and we'd have fun but our relationship wasn't deep and he was also three so I don't know what the relationship was like but like it was something and he was also developing as a person so uh one of the greatest pandemic blessings was that like I had a much deeper relationship with my son because I was forced to be grounded like I couldn't fly anywhere and then I switched jobs in the middle of that and then I would have had to travel for that too, but I was still grounded because COVID mm-hmm. didn't let anyone travel. Mm-hmm. And my kid was also not at school. Mm-hmm. So you forge this relationship there and then, you know, kind of, you know, for better or worse. And uh, 
I don't know how to answer your question. Like, do, do you just, you just love your kids. You love your spouse. Like, you know, like so you, just you love do them it is what you're saying. Yeah. Well, yeah. you love them, not out of volition or, you know, obligation. You love them because you love them. And so then if you love them, like, it's like, man, Blair, with all the broccoli and Brussels sprouts you eat, like, how do you ever make time for chocolate? No, wait a second. <laughs> I love chocolate. What do you mean? How do I make time for chocolate? I have time, like, oh man, how don't you get so full of like kale and cabbage salads and stuff? Like, how does anyone ever find any moments to like eat the, the delicious things and like That's ice cream? So or whatever? Good. Like, so uh, good. okay, I'll find a way. <laughs> like, I'll figure it out. Okay, I'll figure out how to get some fit pizza into my schedule. You know, like, uh, yeah, you love your. I, I love my family so. Um, I love them like I love pizza, like for the most part. I mean, sometimes it's hard, obviously, but like, um, yeah, like the, every decision you make is a series of trade-offs. What Mm -hmm. if, what if, Mm -hmm. right? Like what if questions. Mm -hmm. And so when you're on a flight at like six in the morning, because you didn't want to fly out the night before, because you want to tuck your kid in at night and you're bleary eyed on the airplane, you're like, oh, this sucks. Like you're not really thinking to yourself, well, gosh, I just wish I could have gone out last night and missed my kid. Sure. You're not thinking that. That doesn't yeah. cross your mind because it's not like, well, sacrifice and, you know, like do it. It's like, uh, but I'm so glad I saw my kid last night. You know, I'm so glad I saw my wife this morning, you know? So like, you just, you just do it. I don't know. And then, and then when you can't, cause there are moments by the way, where it's like, also, I'm not going to feel guilty about the fact that when I'm on a business trip, like it's nice to go to the hotel room and I don't have any kids to deal with. And like, <laughs> I can have full run of the remote control, you know, and like I can go out and have, you know, like Chinese food whenever I want, like, you know, like you don't feel guilty about that too. Mm-hmm. You know, like you mm-hmm. realize that your partner is counting the cost mm-hmm. and like you are not. And so you, you take, you, you don't forget that. You don't forget mm-hmm. that that's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like, it doesn't help anyone to not enjoy it either. Yeah. Right. Like just you do it. And then, yeah. so you, you find the balance and then you just kind of do it. Oh, that was good. The Brussels sprout thing in chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you love your kids. Like, yeah. Oh man. Um, I Do you have time? I'm sorry. I have I, time. I can uh, keep going. Okay, good. Cause I, I have to ask you, you know, before this life, there's many lives that you've lived. <laughs> yes, there are. There really are. Um, but, you know, I, I hesitate to go to the very beginning. It's okay. I can but, go to as far back as you want. Okay, because, like, I want to know. <laughs> let, me go in a, let me go in an order, okay? Okay, yeah, fast, let's go in I'll order. I'll go fast and slow. Should I go fast okay. and slow? Yes, yes. Okay. So, in college, I was an engineering major, and then there's this what? thing. What? Back from before everyone was born that's listening to this. Um, <laughs> Wait, I didn't really? I didn't know yeah, that. Okay. I was a computer science major and uh, an English minor. And I uh, realized that um, there's this thing that happened a long time ago. It's called the dot-com bubble and it burst. <laughs> and all these companies that were making all these things called the internet, um, they all stopped existing. And so that happened my junior year in college and the market just crashed Mm. as markets, you know, sometimes do. Okay. So then I had no job. So I was like, okay, what do I do? Um, you know, and at the same time, I just realized like my whole life as like an immigrant child growing up science, math, science, math, like that's what you're going to do engineering. My dad was an engineer. My sister is an engineer. Like I was at a great engineering school, Illinois computer science major. Okay. I'm going to be an engineer. 
and then like somewhere along the lines I realized I was like good with words and like I was good at writing and mm -hmm. I was uh, actually pretty good at it like AP lit my senior year you know senioritis everyone's blowing it off you don't need to do well in your grades as long as you do well in your AP exam but I like missed Michael Jordan's final Bulls game at home ever um, which my friends were like, ditch your paper and just come do this thing. And I was like, that does sound like a once lifetime opportunity, but also I'm 17. So I don't have, I don't have a lot of, a lot of life to compare to. Uh, I was like, I'm going to write this English paper instead. Like I just realized I had a way with words. And so uh, in college, that realization became sharper. I realized I might be good in the humanities. I realized that law required a strong command of logic. And so I sat for the LSAT and it turns out engineering actually gives you a lot of the right kind of skills and instincts to do well on the LSAT. It actually mm -hmm. creates your ability to generate certain logical conclusions under time pressure really well. And then I was a good reader and writer. So like reading comprehension wasn't that hard. So like my first time I sat to the LSAT, I happened to do really well. That was just on a practice test. I prepared a little bit more. I ended up teaching an LSAT class. And that's when I started learning because I'm an external learner. And then I, um, uh, and I took it again and I did very well. And um, one of the important lessons is like, it's very unfair, but uh, standardized testing does oftentimes play a disproportionate, you know, role in, you know, different opportunities that open up. Uh, I applied to nine schools, you know, three were like schools I'd probably get into, three fallback schools, three like reach schools. And I got into Penn, uh, University of Pennsylvania, which is near the top of my list. And so after taking a year off, I went, uh, went to law school and learned a lot about myself, learned a lot about sort of different um dimensions of me um thought that I would just do like engineering and law like be like a patent lawyer like an IP lawyer um but then when I went to a law firm and did an internship I realized again once again I really loved to be persuasive I love to work with mm -hmm. great people I um also just didn't want to hang out with like the nerds you know and like all the nerds <laughs> were in IP and they're really nice people but they're so nerdy and the business litigation people are like, cool. They're like the cool kids. <laughs> and so I was like, you know what? I'm going to just be, I'm going to join do business litigation. So that's what I did. Of course, you know, you can take, uh, an, um, you can take an engineer out of, um, whatever the right, I don't know what the idiom or turn of phrase I was going for. You can't take the engineer out of the engineer. Like you can't take uh -huh, the uh -huh. technology out of the engineer. Mm -hmm. So you can take the engineer away from technology, but you can't technology out of the engineer. So like, of course I found my way, my way back to like legal technology after five and a half years at a firm here in town in Atlanta. Um, I um, had a lot of callings on my heart mm -hmm. and wanted to kind of figure out what this life was for and what I was going to do. Uh, was serving a lot at church had some very challenging voices in my life that were just like, look at you claim that you care about justice and missions and like all these things. Um, but I see a person working at a top law firm, paying off student loans, going to your parents' church, driving your car. Like you're just, you know, it's actually my ex-girlfriend, which is kind of tough. So, cause she was like, <laughs> cause she was basically like, look, I don't know why I don't want, I, you say great things, but like, I'm not going to sign up for your life. Like that's not it. Um, because all, all your behaviors and actions don't point towards um, someone who can, you know, like walk it like you talk it, right? I don't think that's what she said. I think that's Migos. But anyway, it's like, she was like, you know, it's what she, she was like, just challenging me on that. And then she, and then we broke up and then I was like, oh. uh, and I, but also it was like a real challenge to me, you know? And then a few years later, I met my wife and she was like, um, gave me reinforcement in the similar direction, but a completely different way. 
Mm. Um, because I was struggling with a lot of self-doubt and I was like, I don't know if I'm ever going to go and like live in India and like, you know, like put some effort into fighting human trafficking and, you know, like literally set slaves free, right? Like that feels like something that's at the center of my faith, but Mm -hmm. I want to do it and I'm a lawyer and I can do it, but I can't, um, because I'm living this otherwise kind of like, you know, inertia stream of just like, you know, fancy lawyer life. And I remember we were still friends and not dating or anything, but she was like, I believe you're going to do it. Like, I actually really believe you're going to do it. And um, she's not like a cheerleader type. She's not like, she's, a you know, she's not like a wet blanket. Like, she's very nice, but like, she's like, she's not the type of person that would encourage you uh, or say something like that if she didn't mean it, mm-hmm. you know? And mm-hmm. she's like, you know, I just think you're really going to do it. I believe that like you have that conviction enough to actually get yourself up out of this track and do something like make a hard left turn and do something really different wow. she's like I remember the day we we're like mm-hmm. in a parking lot uh we we're on our way to some kind of firm event somewhere and she just told me that she's like no I think you're gonna do it mm. uh and I was like let's get married <laughs> like two years later I was like I was like you know uh so then the way it goes is I got married and um we went on our honeymoon and I came back quit my job I moved to India and then she moved to India after me. And I worked at a company very much like what we described Factor was. It's it's an alternative way to do legal services. Uh, you have to be a lawyer to stand up in court and argue for a client, but you don't have to be a lawyer to read evidence. Like reading mm-hmm. evidence is something that anyone can do. Um, it helps if you have a really keen lawyer mind. And so what we, that company at the time, they recruited really, really smart lawyers in India who were very familiar with a very similar kind of legal system because mm-hmm. it's all the same as the UK kind of common law system and had an understanding of like, this is what's relevant. This is a secret and this is nothing to categorize things, analyze evidence. Um, And then that kind of catches me up. I feel like I did that for a while. I was in a very different place in my life. I, you know, was working with uh, an anti-trafficking organization uh, called Justice Ventures International. Um, After I'd done an internship with IJM in my law school years, I really got kind of bit with a bug. Um, and we, you know, I was just kind of volunteering and helping on the side and I was a trustee for them and I did whatever I could to, uh, kind of help people on the ground, worked together with the CEO and founder of that organization, um, and was blessed by just stories and mentorship and, um, invested with the local church there, all that stuff. And then moved back, climbed a corporate ladder and, came full circle to the fact that I want to really care about people. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. And you know um, what? So we- the big secret is this. I think I wasn't going to disclose. I'll just say it. But uh, we are going to move out of the country again. No. <laughs> yeah. So we're probably going to spend another, do another expat assignment. Um, probably. I don't want to say it for certainty for the purpose of the podcast. Um, but we're going to move to Northern Ireland. <gasps> actually, to Belfast for about... Um, you know, one and a half to two years. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That's exciting. It is exciting. Holy smokes. That's so fun. And so like, okay. Um, why? Uh, because my passion in life is to care for our people and, uh, nobody in our senior management team is near our people like physically. So, um, I have always been like, you know, like after we came back from India, like one of the things Mia and I learned about each other is like, if we ever start a family or even just the two of us, um, we want to be the people to get up and say yes, to go again. And like yeah. that, like out of some romantic, you know, vision or calling um, really because we have more to give and we realized it was fun. 
Like we just enjoyed it. Yeah. You yeah. know, like a lot of like, oh, you know, my kind of school of missiology and like think Christian thinking was, uh, is now shaped into just go like, if you're okay living overseas, like if that's the thing you can do and like, you think you enjoy it and like, not just traveling and being a tourist, but like, you feel like you could live up somewhere else. Uh, and you feel like you could be there and then like, you know, be Christian, like just, just be Christian. You don't have to go crazy and like, you know, like go into the jungles and like, you know, like hand out leaflets and, you know, end up on a spike. Like you don't have to do, you don't, it doesn't have to be as crazy as that. You just have to go somewhere and then just be a witness, man. Like just live your yeah. life and like, just be true to your faith in some other place that's not here. Mm. Um, and that will have an impact. Yeah. And there will be stories and you'll just see stuff that you never think you'd ever see. Um, and that's something that happened for us in India. And the other thing is that in the United States and in a lot of the Western world, like, you know, that's not actually how most humans in, on this planet live. You know, like our life here is not how the rest of the world lives. And so something really important for us, for our family was like, you know, people like Francis, who's five and Lewis, who's 10 months and doesn't know anything yet. Um, we want them to see how the world lives. We want them to know how the rest of the world actually is, not That's our incredible. weird bubble that we live in here. Yeah. So not that Belfast is like some, I mean, it's, you know, it's still in the Western world and, you know, a lot of it is just like, we want to hop on a plane and go to Paris and get croissants and come back. You know, like, it's like, for sure. Like, it's going to be just fun too. Um, but there is something to living internationally and we always want to say yes. And you don't want to do it too late in life. Like you want your kids to have friends and like, you know, form a network, but um, before a certain age, like it's cool, yeah. you know, they're very resilient, very yes. adaptive. So I always said, like, I'm going to hear this podcast. I'm going to hear this podcast and he's going to be like, let's go ideas. Like, yeah, you should have (laughs) ideas. Are you down to live internationally? I just, I mean, it would take some time. So I'm coming around to, I mean, in my head, I'm like, okay, but then, (laughs) but I know what you gotta do. You gotta gotta talk to a lot of people who have done it. Yeah, I think, well, it's funny because David's always had this idea in his head that he wants to live in Europe, like okay, just sure. for like a couple of years. And then we recently talked to someone that was like, I've done it, do it, you'll love it. Yeah, and I'm like, totally. oh my God. <laughs> yeah, just do it. Why would you not do it? Just do it. Like life is Stop, short. Ed, yeah. Stop. <laughs> we have like what? If, if we all live to be 80, we have 4,000 weeks on earth, right? Uh-huh. Like, what are you gonna do with those weeks? What are you gonna do with like? No, you're every... so right, and like I and I hear you, and my you and my husband, like they, you guys would get along actually. I yeah. Think, but, well, but, watch um... move to Northern Ireland. You can come yeah. with us. Our kids can go to school together. Oh my um, god! Or you could move to like you know somewhere more adventurous, like Ukraine. Well, or he grew up in Brazil, but we're not going oh, back there right. right now. But <laughs> yeah, Brazil, Brazil would be interesting. Yeah, for sure. Oh man, I'm good. I'm good. I mean, you probably you probably won't get kidnapped like more than like once. OMG, like, Ed. Just the one time. That's fine. Um, well, okay. I gotta uh, backtrack just a little bit because I'm. I want to know. Do. I did. Um, I just went straight and didn't let you come in at all. No, so. no, no. It was great. It was great. That's exactly what I wanted, and I think um, I gained a lot from that. All of that. Uh, just. You talk about it so nonchalantly, like it's no big deal, but like all the things that you've accomplished is really exciting and truly, truly remarkable in my book. I don't know a lot of people like you. So, um, but uh, in India, like even that, right? Like, oh yeah, we just moved to India. No big deal. Right. And um, I went on (laughs) missions to Calcutta 
Mm, yes, yes. And I kind of have a vague recollection of that. You do? Like maybe I saw it on social or something. Oh my I gosh. And yeah. I was like, it was. <laughs> was it rough? I mean, I, I really love the people, but I just, I, it, uh, it was a, it was a trip for sure. It was, yeah. it was uh, a big one, but um, if that's not clear, I just, it was terrible. I was sick most of the time and it was that's, not good, but yeah. anyways. No, that, that happens. Yeah. Happen. But what I wanted to ask was like, you know, you mentioned you were working with, uh, adva- with advanced uh, the nonprofit? Yes. Justice Ventures International. Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. Justice Ventures International. Um, and you were doing some, you said just casually, you did some side stuff for them. Like, can you expand on that just a little bit? Like what that looked like? As yeah. Far as- so um, there's, uh, I forget what the number is, like 38 million people in slavery today or whatever it is. Um, huge numbers. Uh, many of them are in South Asia and uh, they're trafficked. That is illegal. It is not allowed. Um, that is not a, a, a country. There is a long cultural history where there was some sort of, you know, um, significant sort of inequality, uh, wealth inequality that resulted from a system, you know, related to caste that, you know, mm. um, enabled a lot of the kind of concentrated power to sort of dominate and basically own um, a lot of people through uh, kind of uh, debt slavery, right? Mm. So, um, you get a loan for like, you know, a thousand rupees, which is like, I don't know, uh, whatever, $27 or something. And to pay back, you have to pay back with work, live in the facility, et cetera. So you can Google human trafficking. There's a whole thing out there. A lot of people know about it. Um, uh, it was kind of uh, new at the time, you know, mm-hmm. for us to really think about that as a real calling. Um, that we're not just finding ways to care for people's needs uh, physically and from a humanitarian perspective, or to care for people's needs spiritually from, you know, kind of a, a religious perspective, but to care pe- for people who are both um, fed and had access to church, but were not free. And so um, because of slavery, and um, we wanted to end uh, slavery in this generation, which we hope is still possible. Um, so there are organizations like International Justice Mission, and also this other one that I was working with, Justice Ventures International, that really focused on a model that partnered with local NGOs on the ground to identify instances of human trafficking, to collect the right, the necessary documentation that says like, are you staying here against your will? Were you paid in advance? You know, um, wow. has the, 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 the owner threatened you with um, physical violence or threats of physical violence? Are you in fear of your life, et cetera? Um, you know, are you making that less than the minimum wage? Like there's just like a number of things that kind of fulfill the legal definition of slavery and they'd go and gather the that documentation kind of undercover through communities like whatever and then once they had enough evidence gathered you kind of call the cops right and then they get basically like the equivalent of like a warrant to come do a raid set these people free and the reason why lawyers get involved with this kind of work you know if you feel so sort of convicted and passionate about it is because um there's a lot of legal proceedings involved with that there's also a lot of kind of like legal sort of um compensation for a lot of the victims and survivors of that and then there's also accountability for the perpetrators of that and so you have to help you can help prosecute them in court so that they don't go and make you know you said 30 slaves free but if you don't really stop the slave owner then you're just making 30 new people slaves because he'll go back and do it again so uh you have to get you know prosecute perpetrators and hopefully the, the notion is create um 
a system of actual enforcement of the laws that are on the books. And so that's what a lot of these organizations did. That's what that's the way JVI was structured. Um, so I would just kind of help and hang out and go into their offices and sit with their lawyers and see what I could do to kind of lend a hand and um, go and visit with people and uh, visit with, um, they did a lot of community trainings. Like this is what human trafficking is. Like maybe your culture or your town or village has taught you that this is totally ex culturally acceptable, but it's not. If it's happening to you, see something, say something, like here are the things, like here's hotlines. And um, also even like training judges, like magistrates on like, this is how you handle these cases when they come to you. Here are the elements wow. of the crime. Like here's what you and so JVI did a lot of that kind of work or like hospitals that would see people because they were injured right. working under bonded labor. And like, they'd be like, you know, it's kind of like when you go into a hospital in the United States and like, there's kind of like, um, um, like domestic abuse signs that like they have to do intake for. Mm -hmm. It's like the same kind of thing. It's like, Oh, do intake for like human trafficking. Like wow. here are the signs you should call the cops. Um, so JVI did a lot of that great work, uh, faith-based organization, but always worked with others to the common interest of justice. And it was a lot of people in Delhi, which is where I was living. And it was just, it's great. I mean, it was just, I don't know, you know, like go rescue some, some slaves. Like it's, it's yeah. great. I mean, it's um, interesting as you're talking and explaining like what human trafficking is. I realized we, I think, you know, a hot word that we hear a lot is like about sex trafficking. Sure. I think the other side of that is not, there's more to that there's know? a lot of yeah. uh, agricultural industrial kind of bonded labor you have child labor you also have like you know like a lot of kids rolling beady cigarettes or tanning leather um you know exposed to a lot of carcinogens you know obviously underage and shouldn't be working without work permit not paid the minimum wage you know really in bonded slavery like it really is slavery like you hear about sex trafficking but you also in the united states kind of like 19th century south southern you know, slavery of um, Africans, that was very agricultural and very industrial. And yes, that's actually yes. the nature of it. It's breaking rocks and quarries. It's making bricks from scratch. It's like stuff like that. Like making bricks from scratch. It's that's, like, you know, like it's like the, Exodus, you know, it's like literal I mean, slavery. Like, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm just naive and sheltered, but it's just like insane to me that that still happens. It's nutso. It's bonkers bananas. But Human trafficking is so lucrative because um, what are you going to buy a brick machine that breaks down all the time and pay like $10,000 for that? Or are you going to enslave a bunch of people for basically free? Um, and so the economics and the dynamics still kind of reward that, um, especially if there's no enforcement of law, yeah, right? Yeah. Like if it's like, well, the laws exist, but no one's going to enforce them because I'm the head honcho around here. Um, so you have to bring accountability to perpetrators. Like you got to actually do it. And I'm not like, I'm not on some mission to like, demonize them and like destroy their lives and like anything like that but you need rule of law at some level yeah. you know um so you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh that was what that initially drew me to india yeah what'd you say no that's what initially drew me to india was like to go and kind of participate in that work i see the legal outsourcing stuff was just like kind of the door that opened it was the door that opened um for you i had go. a six-point plan to try to get to india and that was I was like, I got to find a job out there and maybe it's mm -hmm. going to work full-time for JVI or something like that. Um, and really kind of putting myself in the nonprofit slash ministry world. Um, but I was looking for any way I could just get out there. And then that door opened. That's awesome. And yeah. I had the skills for it. So it was like real, it was, it was definitely a Providence for sure. It's amazing. 
Um, okay, well, I again, I don't want to take up too much of your time, Ed. I feel like I could talk to you forever, but <laughs> but yeah. um, uh, well, I'm excited for your possible venture to Belfast to be with the people physically, and I think again that just speaks volumes about your your journey and your career and how you've like just come to I like you know your self awareness of what you want and. Being able to apply that practically to your job and your career is very inspiring for me. I hope people listening will also be inspired. Um, I always ask people when they come on, would you be open to talking to somebody that maybe is interested? And I know there's no definite definition clearly of what you do, but maybe even being a lawyer or like sure. you know, just talking about the avenues for them. Yeah, I'd be happy to speak. I, I talk to young people all the time. I'm happy to do that. I, um, among the many things I do in my spare time, like I'll interview um, on behalf of Penn. So like, oh. you know, when high schoolers, you know, apply to UPenn for undergrad, um, you know, they get all these volunteers of Penn alumni. And so I always like to do that partly because like, I don't know any high schoolers anymore. Like I don't like interact with them. Yeah, and yeah. I just want to like, I just want to like, I'm just, now that I've got a kid in the public school system, I'm like, what is your life like? like yeah. Where are you headed? <laughs> what are these kids? And like, how are they coping with the pandemic? Oh my gosh. You know, yeah, like, so yeah. I'm just like, I do it and I do it for Penn also to kind of help them out. And, um, and so I know a little bit about the process applying to college. I still know a little bit about law school. I got friends there and, you know, who are in academia and faculty and I'm happy to talk to about the job market, about all sorts of stuff. I am very, very, very happy to, um, to talk about that stuff, but awesome. really spend the first part of your life maximizing optionality get great grades the best grades you can get make sure that as many professors know you as possible so you have good references and then spend a lot of your life just like you said knowing yourself like just mm -hmm. what who am i and it's hard to figure that out until you've put yourself into a number of environments and then you kind of look and see how you are and then once you start to figure out who you are like go and be true to that like don't you know what i mean like, but like that's the problem right like i feel like um I mean, maybe things are different now, but I just feel like, you know, you don't really get the opportunity to figure out who you are unless, or I mean, I think it just differs. Like my personality is like, I'm just a good soldier. I do what I'm told kind of thing until I went to college and I was like, oh, this is who I am. <laughs> like, but, sure. but college is like, so not too late to learn that. Like, I don't think I learned who I was till I was like, <clears throat> probably in India, you know, like mm -hmm. I you start to define yourself by other things and like you were like you and I, you and I are both external kind of like learners. Like, I don't think I really understood the kind of person I wanted to be until I was married and I decided the kind of husband I wanted to be. Yeah. And that's when I decided who I wanted to be uh, because I wasn't that man when I got married, I was not the husband I wanted to be, you know? And um, I realized that. And it's not because Mia like, you know, like slapped me around or anything. It's because I just, it was very apparent, you yeah, know, that yeah, I wasn't. Yeah. And so you, you learn these things when you learn them. And I've learned to find a lot of peace with being like kind of a late bloomer in life, you know, and, but, you know, with human longevity and like, whatever, like we have a lot of time left to figure that out. You still have time to figure it out. Yes. Um, I still figure am out. figuring it out. Yeah. Figure <laughs> out who you are. And then once you do figure it out at a certain point, you just have to be true to that and stop figuring it out. You know, just be like, I'm not, when I grow up, it's name your, it's like 
when you're 41, you can't be like when I grow up. <laughs> like you got to be like, you can still have dreams. You can still have aspirations. You can make left turns. You can start a second career. There's lots of possibilities, but at minimum, you should know yourself, mm -hmm. like invest in your self-awareness and like have good friends and partners and people in your life that can tell you who you are. Um, like you told me today that you thought I'd be great at leading people. That's so important to hear that for me. So that's spend the first half year, kind of like first, at least 10 years, just figuring out who you are. Uh, and then once you figure it out, like just life is short, just go do that, yeah, go do that thing, you know, for sure. For sure. Oh, well, thank you so much, Ed. Again, I really appreciate your time in your extremely full plated life. <laughs> of course, I'm happy to. Yeah, um, hey guys, so if you uh, are interested in um, getting in contact with Ed or, you know, just having a conversation about life, um, he's really great to talk to. He'll ask you all the questions. There's no doubt <laughs> in my mind. Um, but you can reach out to me through social media and I can connect you or you can email me at podcastwigu at gmail.com. Thanks guys. Thanks again, Ed. Until next time.